Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is a heavy book for 21st century Christians. It's intensely practical, and it's applicable to our lives. It's filled, though, with both comfort as well as often uncomfortable relevance. And that's why when I planned out this series, uh, the Lord willing, 35 or more messages this year in Hebrews, I built in breaks. And so next week we're going to finish chapter 4, and then we're going to take a three-week break. After Easter, we'll get back to it. We're also going to take breaks at Mother's Day and Father's Day as well. But please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is the word of God. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with us, and we pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, we pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Many Bible-believing Christians have a nasty little habit that they don't speak often about. Some don't even know they do it. It's a dangerous practice. It can have long-lasting spiritual implications. What's that habit? Now, there are many to choose from, I know. But it's this. Taking Bible verses out of context. 
We ignore the verses immediately before and after. We memorize them. We, we scrutinize them. But we completely ignore the context. We, we go our way happy with ourselves because we, we know God's word. But we actually have no idea what it really means. How often have you heard Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, quoted in reference to prayer? The verse says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. As if God was only present when at least two or three were gathered. Well, I'll tell you what, when I'm praying by myself, the Lord is with me. Jesus promised us that he is with us always, that he would never leave us or forsake us. But this verse is often used out of context. The verse is actually in the context of church discipline. That when we exercise church discipline appropriately, we have God's blessing. We have God's uh, presence assured that as we agree, he also agrees with our course of action. It's not that if at least two or three are gathered that God is with those who are praying. Now, when we take a Bible verse out of context, we run the risk of making it say what it doesn't say, making it mean something that God did not intend it to mean. We focus sometimes on one aspect of a verse to the exclusion of another. Now, Hebrews 4.12 is this kind of verse. It's often taken out of context. We've all got it memorized. You memorize it in, in, uh, in Awana. It's a great verse. Due to the sword imagery, I actually brought a sword with me today, a double-edged sword. Due to the sword imagery, it's often uh, kind of linked to Ephesians 6.17, taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, and, and the verse is taken to mean that we ought to uh, use it as a powerful defensive weapon uh, against evil and against uh, uh, things that we need to set straight. I've quoted this verse many times in that kind of way. Now, the thing is, that's one application of that verse. It just doesn't have to be the primary meaning of the verse. Now, what does Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 mean in the wider context of Hebrews and then also in the narrower context of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4? What did it mean to the people that originally read this letter? What's God saying to us today? Uh, since we began the study of this amazing book in, uh, of Hebrews, I, 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 I've always liked the book of Hebrews. I didn't know how much I loved it until we started uh, studying this book. And um, we have seen a real flow of thought emerge from, from chapter 1, verse 1. That God has spoken his definitive speech in Christ. That Jesus is better than Moses and angels and David and Joshua. He's better than anybody. God spoke that final authoritative word in Christ and that we are not to ignore it. We are not to drift past it and miss it. We must pay close attention to what he has said in Christ. That the message of Jesus is the only way of salvation. That Jesus substituted himself in our place on the cross. That he's the only way to heaven. That in Christ alone our hope is found. And that there's this rest that God has provided for his people. He has promised this rest. But it can be missed. 
It can be missed due to disobedience. It can be missed due to unbelief. And we often find ourselves in the danger zone of unbelief and stubborn rebellion against God. And that God wants us to listen to him and to not uh, drown out his voice. And also to be connected with, in relationship with one another. So that our hearts remain tender and don't grow hard. True believers will be shown to be true believers as they persevere. But the false will not. That's what we've seen so far. And in, he, in, in chapters 3 and 4, we've seen this, the author's exposition of Psalm 95. Describing Israel's wilderness wanderings and their disobedience. And even though God had delivered them from the land of Egypt, even though God had provided for them, done miracles among them, they refused to enter by faith. The writer of Hebrews applies to the lives of these Jews that he's, that he's writing to as it relates to hard-heartedness and as it relates to entering God's rest. And today what we see is the tail end of that exposition of Psalm 95. There's this great urgency of Hebrews. Uh, the people, uh, the writer, spoke and, and wanted them to obey, wanted them to listen to God, to diligently uh, persevere and enter God's rest. He's writing urgently to Jews that were scattered throughout the Eastern world. They were in danger of drifting away from their newfound faith in Christ. In the Eastern world, the, the Jewish faith was permitted. But the Christian faith was also often persecuted. And these Jews that had come to faith in Christ were now faced with this temptation. It was getting difficult. And the temptation was to go back to Judaism. To go back to what was allowed. To go back to what was, was not as uh, severely persecuted. Not so much pressure. In the immediate context here, God is saying in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that the readers who were tempted to stop following Christ and go back to Judaism would be held accountable to the word of God. That they better be diligent to enter that rest because both God and his word would hold them accountable. And that they may use the sword of the Spirit in many situations, but first they had to let it sink down deep into their hearts. There's that same urgency for us today. We may be easily swayed by enticing options away from following Jesus as preeminent, as first. We too discover that we are ultimately utterly dependent upon God and his word for life, for breath, and to live the Christian life. What I want to do today is look at two primary ideas as it relates to these two verses. First, I want to look at something that the living word does. And then second, we'll look at something that the living God does. But first of all, the living word. The living word examines everything. Look at verse 12. For the word of God, God's word is truth. It's the voice we're to listen to, not to harden our hearts to. And this verse gives us six qualities of the word of God. The first is it's God's word, not man's. That first word, for, it means because of everything that went before, because of everything that was previously stated, the word of God, the totality of his revelation, his authoritative speech that he has given, 
the Word of God, the writer lifts up. All through Hebrews so far, taking Old Testament passages, and instead of naming the writer, the human writer, he says, God has said. God has said somewhere. He has a high view of Scripture being the authoritative Word of God. The highest view of Scripture ought to permeate our minds. That God's Word is true, completely true, inspired, every word inspired by God. Every word profitable. Every word useful. Jeremiah 23, God says something about His Word that is strong. Jeremiah 23 Verse 28, he says, the prophet, the prophet that has a dream, share your dream. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. And then look at verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Have you ever thought about God's word being like a hammer? It's God's word, not man's. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, he speaks of them being obedient to God and to having their souls purified from a guilty conscience and their fervent love for one another. And then in verse 23, he says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, by the living and enduring word of God. Verse 24 says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word will last forever. Obviously, God is eternal, but of his created things, people and the word of God last forever. There's also fruitcake. But seriously, God's word lasts forever. Forever. Those of you who have study Bibles, I have a little nit to pick on this study Bible craze. I have study Bibles. I love study Bibles. But I use a Bible that just has God's word inside. Let me ask you a question, those of you who have study Bibles. How often do your eyes go right to the notes? Some of you may have already done that today. Testing what I say by what the study notes say. There's a problem there with putting man's word right next to God's word. Because it's very easy for us to read the notes and almost lift those ideas up to the level of Scripture. It's God's word, not man's word. Second thing, it's alive, not dead. It's alive. The King James says it's quick. It's living. Acts chapter 7, verse 38 speaks of Moses. That Moses was up on the mountain with God, and he brought down living oracles for the people. Living, not dead. We neglect the word. 
The word is alive, and we neglect it. Think for me for, with a mo- for a moment. How much time do you spend on TV, the internet, newspapers, radio, and yes, music? How much time do you think you spend in one year on all those things combined? Maybe two weeks? Maybe eight weeks? Try five months. Five months. The U.S. Uh, Census Bureau found out that Americans spend 65 days watching TV a year. 41 days listening to the radio. Seven days devoted to the internet, newspapers, and music CDs. I guess they didn't uh, measure iPods. Because that could be 24 hours a day, right? Media distracts us from spending time in the living word. I was driving to L.A. over the last uh, three days this week. I went to a pastor's conference. And, you know, I grew up in Downey, so I've seen a lot of graffiti. As I, I've, my, my dad was a policeman in Los Angeles growing up, so I, I went down to L.A. a lot. Saw a lot of graffiti. I tell you what, saw a lot of graffiti this week. On the side of the freeway, on the, side, on the roofs of houses, on, on the side of buildings, all over the place. You know what? A lot of what we are listening to every day is graffiti. Just junk. Junk. And we have the living word just sitting there, just gathering dust. It's, it's alive. It's not dead. It's also active, not passive. The King James says it's powerful. It's at work. It's effective. It does its work in us who believe. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.13. Paul said, I am so glad that when you received the word of God, you accepted it for what it really is. The word of God, not the word of man, which does its work in us who believe. You see, God's, work is, is at, God's word is at work in us. The Greek word is actually where we get our word energy from. 2 Timothy 2.15, another good Awana verse. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman. Same Greek word. God's word is at work in us and does a work in us. When I was a brand new believer, 22 years ago, I committed myself to read the Bible every day. I was a college sophomore at the time. So I'm going to read my Bible every day. That was my goal. So what happened? Well, I would go a week like, I haven't read my Bible. So I'd open it up and I'd read it. Go another week. My goal was to read it every day, but I'd go another week. Didn't read my Bible. But guess what happened as time went on? I didn't even realize it. But my goal was to read it every day. And what would happen was that the gaps between not reading it would get smaller. It was three days, two days. Till I came to a point in my life when I was reading the Bible every single day of the week. Didn't even know what had happened. But that was my goal. That's not anything to brag about. Every believer should do that. But guess what? Over the years, it doesn't just lock in. A lot of you have done this. You've been in a time in your life when you have read the word every single day. And now you sit here going, it's been a week. What happened? I'm slipping. I'll tell you what, it doesn't 
happen by accident. It happens on purpose. God wants us to go to his word every day. It is active. The only way to sustain a discipline like this in our lives is by diligence, is by perseverance, is by on purpose choosing one thing and not another. It's like, uh, I give you a choice between an apple and candy. Which would you like? Well, we want the candy. We need the apple. So what are you going to choose this week? Some of you do not know God's word because you do not read it. You, you rely upon two spiritual meals a week. You don't know God's word. I, I teach at Talbot, and I'll tell you, I am amazed at the biblical illiteracy at a Christian school. You say, hey, tell me this verse. They're like, uh, hold on. <laughs> and it's a verse, you know, kids memorize in Sunday school. We don't read the word. You're not seeing growth in your life or change in your life because you're relying upon those short little meals versus getting into the word every day. It's not going to cut it. You've got to be in the word every day. You've got to be listening to what God says every single day. God's word is active, not passive. It is also able. It is not obsolete. It's not obsolete. Verse 12 says it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts. And it's sharper than any sword. Every sword, imagine, any, the, the sharpest sword you can ever think of, it's sharper than that. It does what it is intended to do better than anything else can do. The word for sword here is makaira. It means a short dagger. It was used for hand-to-hand combat. It comes from a root word meaning to quarrel, to fight together with someone, to argue. It's used comparatively um, better than any sword. No sword is sharper. It's more accurate, more powerful, able to do what it is supposed to do, better than anything else. It's God's word. Psalm 149 verse 6 says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands. Ephesians 6.17, taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Revelation chapter 2, speaks of Jesus having a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. What a picture. That's why I love this church. You open up your Bible, you bring your Bibles to church, and we hear rustling of pages as we go to, t- go to passages. That's good. To know where something is and what it says because... We believe it to be true. We have staked our lives upon this message. We've got to be on our knees before God. We've got to tremble before God and before his word. I'll tell you the truth. I tremble every week in preparation to come and speak with you because I am not coming up here to give you Mike's thoughts. See, the task that God has put before me is to take and study and pray, and depend, and say, Lord, what are you saying in this passage? What do you want us to have? I will tell you, many out, I, I spend much of my time on my knees in front of my Bible, praying and asking God, God, what, what is it for me? What are you doing in me? And what do you want to do in us as a body? It is a sobering task. To handle the word of God. 
It's able. It's not obsolete. It also penetrates hard hearts. It says in verse 12 that it is piercing. It goes all the way through. It penetrates as far as the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. There is pinpoint accuracy with the word of God. It cuts through all the junk, all the smoke screens, and gets right to the heart of the issue in our life. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter takes his stand and he preaches God's word. He preaches God's word and he ends his sermon by saying, Therefore, house of Israel, you ought to know something. That God has made this Jesus whom I'm speaking of both Lord and both Christ. And look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What do we do with this? They were pierced in their hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You know, no matter how hard our hearts are, the word of God can pierce through that armor. You say, well, I'm too far gone. No, you're not. Your heart's beating. You're breathing. You're not too far gone. The word of God pierces. You say, well, they're too far gone. No, they're not. If they're alive, they're not. I heard a story about these Bible smugglers that had a big old truckload of Bibles, and they came to this checkpoint. The guy with the big Uzi is sitting there. He says, what do you have in the truck? The guy says, dynamite. Dynamite. And then he hands him a Bible. He said, this book can change your life. We've got to handle this book carefully. It's power. It penetrates hard hearts. One more thing it does. It discerns our true condition. It says it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The thoughts of our hearts, what we are thinking. Well, the only person that can do that is your wife, right? Your spouse. The word of God can penetrate and pin, with pinpoint accuracy go to the heart of the matter of what we're thinking. But not just that. It also goes to the motive. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it exposes not only what we're thinking, it exposes why we're thinking it and what we want to do with it. Motive. See, it's a good thing, isn't it, that no one knows all of our motives? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing that when you're at your, your office and not everyone there knows your motives? Isn't it a good thing when you're at your house with your family and they can't see right through your motives? Because if you're anything like me, your motives are not always pure. It discerns our true condition. It is able to judge our thoughts and our, our motives, our intent. goes to the deepest, most hidden part of our souls that, that no one else can see except God. The living word examines everything. Shows us what's really there. It, it, the truth exposes our true condition. It's like this, this one of those body scans. 
everything. You can see it. Therefore, we, we need to be honest with God. We need to be honest with God and be, and be humble before him and, and seek to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We've got a lot of Bible studies going on. But are we putting into practice what we are taking in? I know you, we want to. We've got to read God's word as God's word for us. For us. Let's talk about the second thing. The living word examines everything. And secondly, the living God exposes everything. Look at verse 13. I just want to point out two things. Verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. First thing, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. He sees everything. Everything is before him. Everything is open to his eyes. No one's hidden. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro through all the earth. We can't hide from God. Isn't it weird that we try? We can't hide from God. Truth is, we can't hide from each other very long without something dying in our hearts. But we do, we hide. We hide from people what we're really thinking. We hide from people what, what, what really is going on inside of us. We hide from people our pain. We hide from people our, 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 even our, our dreams. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be humiliated. God's word examines us, and then God, the living God, exposes all. God knows our sin. And God knows our pain, every bit of it. He knows why we've made certain choices. He knows why we keep making certain choices. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We are not able to discern our motive often. God does. The second thing I'll mention is that everything is accountable to God. Everything. Accountability. There's no escaping this reality, by the way. All things, verse 13 says, are open. That word means naked, poorly clothed, without clothes. We think we're standing firm on the word of God. We often fool ourselves like the people James spoke to in James 1.22. Be, be doers of the word, not just hearers who fool themselves. We grow cold. We begin to believe the world's view of things. That the word is dead and passive and obsolete. That it doesn't really speak to every situation. That it doesn't really apply to everything in our life. That it's not really adequate and it's not really necessary in such an enlightened age. The truth is, this book, everything between these two covers, we have staked our lives upon this truth. Is our life, our life, Remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? Remember the king that hired these two rogue tailors? Uh, he paid them huge sums of money, and he said, they said, we are able to make this fine cloth. We'll make you clothes out of this cloth. But you see, this cloth is very special cloth. And it is invisible to the one who is foolish or unfit for his position. So they pretend to work in their little room, and they come and they bring the emperor nothing. Diddly squat is what they brought him. 
Nothing. And they put it on him. They say, oh, try on these new clothes. And he is too proud to admit that he is naked. So he walks out in public and grand procession. And everyone says, what, what beautiful clothes. Because they also are too proud to say, he doesn't have any clothes on. Except one boy. He says, the emperor has no clothes on. He's naked. They talked him into thinking he was wearing finery when he was wearing nothing. He was too proud to admit it. Everyone else, too weak to tell the truth. See, we're naked before God. He knows that we've bought into the lies of the world. He knows we've bought into the lies of sin and of the devil. We've been duped too often as believers. We may dress ourselves up for one another, dress ourselves up for our families and our co-workers and even to come to church. God knows the truth about us. He knows that we're naked and that we're poor and that we're needy. And they were insecure. And they were frightened. And they were unsure. He knows that we're wounded and shameful and prideful and a whole lot less holy than people think we are. I know I am. It also says that we are laid bare, open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know what that means, laid bare? It means to take by the throat An overthrow. It literally means to throw on the back so to have the neck exposed for sacrifice with a sword. It indicates our continuous state in relation to God. We are always open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Interestingly, the last word of this this verse 13, of him with whom we have to do, It's logos, the word of God. Interesting. There's nothing God doesn't see. We're accountable to him now and in the future. We will someday give an account for everything we said, everything we did. Things no one else knows. Things that if we did know, we'd we'd run out the door in shame. This could be cause for our horror, couldn't it? But guess what? It is actually cause for hope. For hope. Why? Because God knows it all, and he lets us live. Don't people who know everything about you, uh, know your faults and point them out, don't they bug you? Aren't they obnoxious? But aren't you glad they tell you the truth rather than telling you lies? Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. God's word is our friend, not our enemy. The devil's our enemy. God's word is our friend to help us. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our life daily with biblical truth we know. See, God's not going to use on you truth you don't even know, that you haven't even heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit to do surgery on our hearts 
As we read God's word devotionally, at home, with our families, with, our, with other believers. As we, as we listen to preaching. As we go to Bible study. Anywhere we are, at work, at home, at school. In the neighborhood, in the community. God uses his word in our life. The word that we already know. See, the primary truth we see today in these two verses Seen in context is that we are accountable to God and his word. We must listen and not ignore. God reveals his truth. He reveals his grace. You see, his truth exposes our lies. His grace, though, it covers our sin. We ought to use the word of God in any and every situation we find ourselves and be bold about it. It's the living word. It's true. It will last forever. But first we have to open ourselves up to its power. Before we go use it somewhere else, we've got to let God do surgery on us and let that be a continual process in our life. Letting God use it as a hammer to drive home what he wants us to see and wants us to be and wants us to do. If, God word, if his word exposes my rebellious heart and covers my sin by the substitution of Jesus in my place, but that tells me I ought to continually expose myself to the word of God. To being in it on my own. To feed myself the word of God. And to hear it preached and to hear it taught. To expose myself to the purifying, examining, uh, cleansing influence of the word of God. Individually. With my family. With other believers. Focusing my attention on the word of God. Allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he wants in my life. Hey, how many movies have you watched where there's a sword fight? You know, somebody, they grab their swords and they, and they fight. And someone is the victor. They get to the point where at some point, their sword is on the neck of their opponent. And what does that opponent usually say? Just do it. Do what you're going to do. Kill me. Or they cry mercy. Say, mercy, save my life. Spare my life. Well, God, in verse 13, is pictured as a victor standing over us. And we are at his mercy. But instead of destroying us, he restores us. He shows mercy. His mercy triumphs over judgment. His blood cleanses us. By his grace we are redeemed. We're made clean. And he doesn't pretend like it never existed. He dealt fully and finally and took care of the problem. He dealt with the payment of the penalty. There is no condemnation, therefore, to those who are are in Christ. God's truth exposes our lies. God's grace covers our sin. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word in us for your glory and for your kingdom. May you change us, Lord, that we would be 
servants of yours who use the word rightly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. Uh, In your bulletins today, there is a bookmark. And we made this bookmark. You're going to get one for the next five weeks going through past Easter. And there's a little how to use it, how to use the bookmark on the back. Just gather your, you can do it alone, gather your family together, gather other, some other believers, read the word, pray together, share praises, sing praises. And uh, by the way, on Saturday of each week, it'll have the scripture that's going to be preached the next morning. So you can also read that in anticipation. And uh, Pastor David and Pastor Ed and I are up here. We'd love to pray with you if you have anything you, wanna, you want prayed for or just or ask someone who's right there with you. Uh, we need to pray for and with one another often. So God bless you. Have a wonderful day.